This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. We're starting today a Genzoe Sashin, somewhat unusual, hybrid version. Six or seven of us in the in the Zendo, the practice leaders and staff of the Austin Zen Center are sitting in person after uh, after a COVID test yesterday and all vaccinated and mostly with masks. And then um, all of you joining in today for the talk. Some of you continuing through the whole session, some attending the talks. So welcome to this, this kind of pandemic style session. Austin is especially uh, overwhelmed with COVID these days, the hospitals full and so on. So. Let's especially dedicate the merit of our practice this week to um, all those with, with COVID, especially those in Austin and around the world. Genzoe Sashin is a unique opportunity to study the teachings of Dogen Zenji in a kind of immersive, intensive, thorough manner while sitting a lot of zazen also. Genzo is an abbreviation for Shobo Genzo, the true Dharma eye treasury, the great masterwork of 13th century founder Dogen Denji. So Genzo is the eye treasury, the eyeball treasury. And A means assembly or gathering. And Sashin means to collect the mind in one pointed here-ness and now-ness. So Genzo Sashin is the eyeball treasury assembly to gather the mind. And uh, this tradition of Genzo-e goes back to 1905, over 100 years ago, but not that long ago. A lot of the centuries since the time of Dogen were We're not, we're not emphasizing the study of Dogen, even within the Soto Zen halls of Japan. The Shogo Genzo was somewhat lost in obscurity for many centuries, maybe 1800s or so. These amazing teachings of Dogen started being rediscovered and uh, the early 1900s was a time for all the 
Buddhist schools in Japan to kind of reinvigorate their their intention to their founding principles. So naturally, the Soto school took up the study of Dogen's and and Kazan's and. And in 1905, uh, one of the great Soto teachers of that time named Oka Sotan Roshi was invited to Aheji, the, the head monastery of Soto Zen, to lead the first Genzoe session. I think this history is, is um, is interesting, um, partly because Okasotan and Roshi, who many of us have probably never heard of, was actually important to our lineage and, and to actually all Soto Zen or a lot of Soto Zen in America traces its roots back to Okasotan Roshi because uh, he was a great scholar, priest of that time. And uh, many people practice with him, including Kishizawa Iyan, who was a, uh, a teacher of Suzuki Roshi. Gyokujin Soon, who was the root teacher of Suzuki Roshi. Hashimoto Eko, who I think is the root teacher of Katagiri Roshi. And Sawaki Kodo Roshi, who is the teacher of Uchiyama Roshi and Shohaku Okamura Roshi. So all of these lineages that have come down to America trace their roots back to Okasotan. My teacher, Tenshin Roshi, is currently sponsoring a uh, translation of one of Okasotan's writings on the Bodhisattva precepts. So hopefully in the next few years, at some point, it, maybe his first teaching in English will appear in print. There was this tradition, um, I still is this tradition, in Japan and, and America, we have people can have many teachers. So, uh, one's root teacher, Honchi in Japanese, in, in Soto Zen, is the teacher who transmits the Dharma to a disciple. But there's also, and that disciple is called the Deshi of, of their Dharma transmission teacher. But uh, a student can also be called a Zuishin as I understand it. Zuishin literally means to follow the mind. So um, for example, Suzuki Roshi was a Zuishin of Kishizawa Iyan. He was the Deshi of Gyokuji and so on. And he was a Zuishin of Kishizawa Iyan. I think, as I understand it, this Zuishin is like, uh, is, uh, closely studying and practicing with a teacher who's not um, one's direct lineage teacher, but a close relationship like that. So uh, it's a beautiful tradition, I think.
Zuishin following the mind of that particular teacher is, I think, studying closely with them. So of those students of Okasotan Roshi, I think most of them were actually Zuishin, not Deshi. This first Genzue Sashin led by Okasotan Roshi at Aheji, apparently, uh, this is according to Shohaku Okabor. There were maybe 150 people, and uh, it was a big event at Aheji, maybe uh, mostly the uh, priests living at Aheji, but probably also lay people from the area came. And it was 70 days, this Genzoe. I don't know if they called it Sashin, maybe they called it the Genzoe. So it's kind of like a whole practice period. I think maybe every day they would have these. Yeah, it was it was two talks every day, like we're doing this session, but for 70 days. And instead of going through one essay of Dogen, they went through all 95 essays of the Shogo Genzo in 70 days, which is more than one a day. So uh, I don't think they went through line by line in the same thoroughness that we can do this week with one essay. But they probably got a, a very thorough overview of Dogen's treasury of true Dharma eye. And this, this Genzoe Sashin tradition continues today, apparently at a Heiji. Uh, I think it's an annual event, like two to three weeks. And other places in Japan, they'll do like a week or, or five days, something like we're doing this week. And Shohaku Okamura Roshi was the one who brought this tradition to America. Beautiful tradition, I think. May it last long. Genzoe Sashin. So this week, we're uh, taking up Dogen's Shogogenzo Muchu Setsumu Treasury of the True Dharma Eye Within a Dream Expressing the Dream Or it's also been translated Expounding a Dream Within a Dream which was written by Dogen Zendi in 1242 during his very prolific writing time. And as Dogen Shobogenzo essays often do, they take up a theme and thoroughly examine it. So the theme here is uh, dreams. And what, what is dream and is this all a dream? I looked through the Shobogenzo and the other records of Dogen looking for other references to dreams. Dream as kind of metaphor for the kind of illusory nature of reality. And there's basically nothing really he says about it. So he packs it all into this one essay that really um, looks at the dreamlike nature of things.
dream as metaphor is a common image in, in Mahayana great vehicle, Buddha Dharma. I also looked into like the early teachings, like the Pali Canon, looking for um, this metaphor of dream as, as a description of the nature of things. And there's nothing in there. These days, you know, you can search everything electronically. And uh, the Buddha does talk about his own actual, you know, sleeping dream is when he was a bodhisattva, kind of prophetic dreams about him becoming the Buddha. But uh, this dream as metaphors is not used in many, many early teachings. So it may first appear in the Prajna Paramita Sutras, the perfection of wisdom teachings of the great vehicle that appeared in around the year zero, appropriately. <laughs> Some uh, think that the perfection of wisdom sutra in 8,000 lines, maybe the earliest Prajna Paramita Sutra, and of course the Heart Sutra and the Diamond Sutra are Prajna Paramita Sutras that came later. And uh, I think this dream metaphor probably started with these Prajna Paramita Sutras and uh, it's all through those sutras actually. So for example, in the 8,000 line Prajna Paramita, Sutra, the Buddha says, all things, all phenomena, all dharmas are empty of own being, are empty of self-nature, are empty of independent existence. Svabhava in Sanskrit, which is kind of like a summary of the vast Prajnaparamita uh, collection. All things are empty of themselves. All things are empty of independent existence, of own being, of self-nature. Nothing exists on its own. That's what we mean by emptiness in Prajna Paramita language. Buddha says all things are empty of its own being. They are like an illusion, like a dream, like an echo, echo, echo like a reflected image in a mirror. These are the classic metaphors of Prajna Paramita. All things are empty. Therefore, they're like an illusion, like a dream, like an echo, like a reflected image. 
when you thus contemplate the true reality of all things, you shall soon go forth into prajna paramita. Thus, the Buddha said. Then uh, a little bit later, in the 8,000 line, Prajna Paramita Sutra, there arose the Prajna Paramita Vajra Chedika Sutra, the diamond cutter scripture. So sharp, it can cut diamond. So indestructible, it can uh, break down indestructible diamonds. Or so diamond-like and indestructible, it can cut through anything. And uh, the very last lines of the sutra, kind of famous lines closing the, the diamond cutter sutra are a verse of the Buddha saying, like a lamp, like a defect of vision, like a star in space, like an illusion, a dewdrop, a bubble, a dream, a cloud, a flash of lightning. View all conditioned things like this. View all created things. View all compounded phenomena like a dream, like an illusion. These uh, images in the Diamond Sutra, some of them are pointing, I think, just to radical impermanence like a um, like a candle flame that quickly can um, can be extinguished like a, like a bubble that can quickly pop but maybe even those too like light is kind of ungraspable a, a candle flame has a shape but you can't get a hold of that shape you can't uh, it's not really a physical entity, a candle flame. And a bubble looks like a um, big full sphere, but it's actually just empty space with a very thin surface appearance. A dream, a cloud that's just made of the sky. A flash of lightning that again looks like a specific shape and just lasts for a moment but actually you can't get a hold of a, of a lightning bolt. So dreams and illusions are pointing to uh, the nature of things in the sense that things don't really exist the way they appear to. Of course things appear like they do in a dream but uh, but the dream images in an ordinary sleeping dream 
though they appear completely real and um, separate from ourselves in the dream, they're not really that way. We know this about dreams. So I think it's a, actually a great metaphor that we can continue to explore this whole week as Dogen does. Dream is a wonderful metaphor for pointing out uh, that things appear vividly, three-dimensionally, um, you know, in relationship to the viewer in the dream, and yet they're not really that way. In fact, uh, apart from just appearances, mental appearances, these dreams have no substance at all. They're just mind appearing as colors and sounds, smells. Maybe we don't smell things so often in dreams, but I think sometimes we do. Uh, tastes can happen in dreams, physical sensations. All of these things appear just like they do in waking life. Uh, and yet there's no objects there in dreams. And another really great thing I think about this dream as, as a metaphor for how things actually are, is not only do objects in the dream um, not really exist apart from mind, they're just mental projection, but the subject in a dream also is, uh, is completely an illusion, right? I think almost every dream is a, is a visual experience, usually visual and auditory, and maybe it includes those other senses too. Usually what we mean by a dream is something is appearing, um, but it's always appearing to a particular set of eyes, right? of dream eyes, we always see from a point of view, a particular location, it seems like we are the viewer in the dream, right? I don't think it's possible to have a dream, not that way. Sometimes we're like a character walking through the dream. Sometimes we're just a uh, kind of a bystander watching, like almost watching a movie. I, my dreams are like this. Usually I'm kind of involved in the dream, looking out through the eyes that seem to, that feel like they're um, looking out through my body's head in the dream. But sometimes it's almost like I'm, I'm not exactly a, a participant in the dream. I'm more like watching other people um, do things in dreams. But in either case, there's still a, a point of view of an observer in the dream. I think it's impossible to have a dream without that, which is all to say that not only are objects in the dream, the sights that we see and the sounds we hear and so on, not only are they just um, complete illusions that are not actually external to the mind, but the sense of subjectivity the feeling of myself as a located entity is always present in the dream too, and is also a complete illusion, right? Because our eyes are closed during the dream. 
So both the subject and the object and the relationship between the subject and object in a dream, all of that is complete illusion. It's, it appears vividly and convincingly as if there is a subject-object relationship in a dream. And the whole thing is this one mind um, amazingly, miraculously manifesting itself as an observer of being observed as a subject and an object simultaneously. Wow. And this is just normal for everybody has dreams. I think, uh, I don't know, probably not all animals, but I think many animals like mammals also dream. You can sometimes see like dogs dreaming, acting out some events in their sleep. So the subject, the object, and the activity that they like, for example, the activity of a subject seeing an object and a, um, a subject hearing a sound, a, uh, a subject um, giving a gift to another person or receiving a gift from another person. These are the activities that can happen between so-called subjects and objects. All three of these are illusions, sometimes called them the three wheels or the three spheres, subject, object, and action. And Prajnaparamita talk, they say these three wheels are pure, meaning that there's actually no um, true distinction between subject, object, and action. And uh, dreams, show us that there is a subject, object, and action. And then when we wake up from the dream in the morning, uh, we see that the subject, the object, and the action in the dream were all just one mind appearing to be divided into three aspects. Not only, sometimes dreams, you know, have a kind of, um, they get kind of a bad rap. And um, in Buddha Dharma, because they're like illusions, we're like, we should get over illusions. Sometimes we, we might feel or the Dharma might imply. That's just a dream, we have to wake up from this dream. And even in our, even outside of Buddha Dharma and just our standard, way of talking, we say, you're just dreaming. It's, it's kind of like a, a criticism, right? It's, a, it's, a, um, it's an insult. This is what I mean by dream, dreaming gets kind of a bad rap. Uh, but this essay of Dogen is actually, um, like Dogen often does, kind of turns that bad rap into a celebration. I think this essay of Dogen is really celebrating dreaming as reality, as a, as a complete expression 
a pure reality. Is we dream, our dream-like, illusion-like life is in itself pure suchness. That's kind of the gist of this of this essay of Dogen. So not only are um, all our clashes, you know, all our greed, hate, and delusion based on um, this kind of misperception of dreamlike nature of things, grasping objects that aren't really separate to begin with and don't exist the way they seem to. Not only are greed, hate, and delusion dreamlike and, and the uh, objects of grasping and aversion dreamlike, but, uh, but the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and the Dharma teachings that help free us from suffering. These are also dreamlike, even in the sutras. For example, the Lalita Vistara Sutra, which is a kind of story of Buddha's life, a great vehicle rendition of Buddha's life. Lalita Vistara is like, been translated as the play in full, which is another metaphor similar to the dream, is that the, the Buddha's life was basically like a play, a dream-like play. In the sutra, uh, the Buddha says that the Buddha has turned the Dharma wheel that is like an illusion, a mirage, a dream, an echo like the moon reflected in water. So the Buddha's Dharma wheel of truth is also like a, like a dream, a mirage. His words are like the echo of truth. And uh, I'm not sure what sutra it's actually from. I'm never able to find this, but um, one of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, really loves this, this verse that he says it's from one of the Mahayana sutras. The Buddha saying, Buddha apparently said, my dreamlike form appears to dreamlike beings to teach a dreamlike dharma that frees them from dreamlike suffering so they can realize dreamlike awakening. So uh, the sufferings like a dream, the, uh, the path to the end of it is like a dream and the cessation of suffering is like a dream. In the Lankavatara Sutra, one of the characters named 
par Ravana, qui est like a Naga king or a Yaksha king or some kind of creature um, that listens to the Buddha teaching in, in the uh, Lankavatara Sutra. He says, um, the Buddhas were, were teaching at this time in the sutra. And then, uh, and then they, um, after they teach, they disappear, these Buddhas. And Ravana says, after he's kind of recounting what's happening here, said, after they had expressed themselves, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas just vanished. Where did those Buddhas go? Were they just a dream or an illusion? Like a fault of vision, a mirage, dream children of a barren woman. Another one of these Prajnaparamita images is like uh, a barren woman is one who can't bear children. Um, so the children of a barren woman is like um, one of those strange Indian images for um, for something that can't be like all phenomena. So he, in this sutra, the, uh, another one of the images is dream children of a barren woman. Is that how the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are? He goes on to say, such is the nature of things, the realm of mind only. Chitta Matra is a, a major theme of this Lankavatara Sutra. So he's saying all these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas uh, are actually like, they vanish like dreams and mirages and uh, because they are just the realm of mind only. And we can easily say this about dreams, right? The dream images that appeared last night uh, were nothing but mind, whatever mind is. Is it not true and obvious to, to anyone that these, the subject and the object and the action in the dream are just mind? And it's quite clear to see that dreams are this way, but it's not so clear. It's, it's a quite a radical teaching to say that actually waking life is pretty much the same too. That's what these sutras are pointing at. So um, Ravana in the Lankavataras is just saying uh, this, like a dream, like a mirage, like a fault of vision and illusion, such is the nature of things, the realm of mind only. This is something the foolish don't know because they're bewildered by false imaginations projections. And uh, these sutras are often saying the, the basic bottom line false projection is that things exist in and of themselves, separate from mind, apart from mind, outside of uh, our experience. We kind of assume it is probably like that, but these sutras are challenging our, our standard assumption. 
Ravana goes on to say, there is no seer or anything seen, no speaker or anything spoken. The appearance of Buddhas and also their teachings are merely what we imagine. Those who view such things as truly existing don't see the Buddha, nor do those who imagine nothing see the Buddhas. So to think that things truly exist, separate and apart from mind, don't see the Buddhas. But those who think that there's nothing at all also don't see the Buddhas. And again, the dream as a metaphor points this out very nicely because if we say, well, what was, what was the nature of your dream last night? You say, well, it wasn't really real things solid things happening there wasn't really a real subject and a real object and real activity there and then someone would ask well you mean then it was nothing at all i would say no i would not say that that would maybe that deep sleep might seem like nothing at all but this dream was very vivid and and appeared um complete in all its three-dimensional colorful array that's not no, that dream was not nothing but it wasn't really existent in the way that it appeared to be when i was dreaming in this way the dream points out the middle way neither either independently existing things nor nothing at all there are appearances. And the, where do these appearances come from in a dream? The mind gives rise to these appearances. The, the mind presents itself as these appearances, uh, but not completely randomly. I mean, dreams are very mysterious, but uh, Sometimes they, there might seem like some pretty random stuff going on in dreams, but uh, sometimes we can trace the events in the day, the previous day or the previous week. We can, we can find them, the, uh, the conditions of particular images in the dream from events that have happened. So there's some causality. These dreams are arising dependent on particular events in our life, particular conditions. Even if they seem totally random, which some dreams do, uh, still the images, if you see uh, you know, an image of a house you've never seen in a dream, a bright blue house never seen before, well, that seems totally random. That's not conditioned. Well, if it looks like a house and we can identify it as a house, that's still something from our experience. So I think it's fair to say that uh, Dream images, unless they're just completely abstract patterns or something, are, um, are drawn from our pool of imagery called the storehouse consciousness. All the conditioned experiences we've ever had throughout any lifetime are available to um, create unique and amazing dreams every night.
So uh, those who view these dream images as truly existing don't see the Buddha, nor do those who view them as nothing at all. The Buddha also says in Lankavatara Sutra, shapes appear and disappear. You might say images appear and disappear in the dream. That is mind, intellect, and conceptual consciousness. So here the Buddha is saying that, that mind or the storehouse consciousness, that, that uh, vast container of all conditioned experiences is like a dream. And the intellect that's um, the seventh consciousness that is that labels things and uh, creates the sense of being an individual person. That is also um, like a dream. And then just basic conceptual or dualistic consciousness that that which just witnesses objects that seem to be separate from the witnessing subject, that consciousness is also like a dream. So the Buddha says, images appear and disappear in the dream, that is mind, intellect, and consciousness. So there's some Mahayana teachings of the Buddha using this dream metaphor. And then Nagarjuna, one of his great verses in, uh, in chapter seven of his Middle Way verses, which is examining um, arising, abiding, and ceasing. I think it's, I think it's the capping verse ending this chapter seven, uh, Nagarjuna says, like a dream, like an illusion, like a city of Gandharvas, which are celestial musicians in the borough. That's how birth and that's how living, that's how dying are taught to be. Like a dream, like an illusion, like a city of Gandharvas. That's how birth, that's how living, that's how dying are taught to be. Birth can also be called arising. Living could also be called uh, abiding. And dying could be called ceasing. So not only do things not really exist the way they appear, but even arising itself, the very fact of something coming to be is like a dream and something abiding for even a moment 
is like a dream. And something ceasing is also like a dream. And uh, Nick Argument spent a whole chapter carefully examining how this is so through, through uh, logical reasoning, which we won't get into right now. That's Nigarian's um, amazing method is using very meticulous, careful logic to prove that there actually can't be really be arising, abiding, or ceasing in the way that we feel like things do arise. A flower seems to arise from a seed through this logic. The gardener will um, prove that it appears that way, but uh, flowers do not really arise from seeds. And so therefore, arising, abiding, and ceasing, birth, living, and dying are all like a dream. They appear that way, but uh, they actually don't really arise or cease. I think that's even harder to accept than um, objects being uh, not really the way they appear. But uh, it says this in the Heart Sutra to, I think, an, an under, underrated line in the Heart Sutra. All dharmas are marked by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease. All things don't really arise or cease, the heart teacher says. I think one of the more um, provocative and challenging lines of the heart teacher, partly because sometimes we hear teachings like, well, um, things things like this lectern uh, doesn't really exist independently, but it dependently arises, doesn't it? Doesn't it arise? Doesn't this lectern arise dependent on conditions? So as we go further down this rabbit hole, Nagarjuna and others will say, actually the lectern doesn't even arise. We can't say it dependently arises really. Because that's a kind of arising. It's conventionally true that the, the lectern appears to arise, but it doesn't really arise and it won't ever cease. And it's not abiding right now either. That's, uh, that's um, kind of lectern we can chew on for a while. Nagarjuna lived in like the second century, kind of building on the Prajnaparamita Sutras. And then a couple of centuries later, the founders of the Yogacara tradition, Asanga and Vasubandhu were born. Asanga says in his summary of the great vehicle, objects of consciousness are only representations. 
is a Sanskrit word, vijnati. Conscious constructions. Representation, I think, is a pretty good translation. They're just they're, they're mental representations, according to Asanga. Objects of consciousness, like this lectern, is an object of consciousness. It's actually only a mental representation. It's vijnapti matra. It's own. It's representation only, because there are no external objects like a dream. He says. This is asanga. He said, in a dream. Everything is vijnapti matra, or mental representation only, without any relationship to any external object. So he just lays it out straight and clear. I think that's the essence of the dream image in all these sutras. In a dream, everything is mental representations, mental constructions, without any relationship to any actually external object in the dream. That's bottom line. So, so this is the Indian Mahayana tradition uh, saying that uh, our usual human experience is illusory. In other words, it's illusory doesn't, doesn't exactly mean it's not real. Sometimes you do hear that, that language. I think it's more accurate, maybe more helpful to say. Illusion means that something doesn't exist in the way that it appears. Any illusion is like that. An illusory object is, is something that doesn't exist in the way it appears to exist. So it, it might have a kind of reality, but it's not the reality we think it has. So I think a nice way of talking about illusion and dreams. So therefore, since that is the, uh, the summary, of the great vehicle, that is the yes, uh, dream-like <clears throat> illusory nature of all experiences of arising, ceasing, all kinds of objects. Uh, the understanding of this dream-like nature infused with great compassion for all illusory sentient beings and their illusory suffering. This is the heart of the great vehicle. If we lose the great compassion, then it's some, it's just some mental gymnastics that um, might be helpful, but uh, is missing the point of the great vehicle. And if we have great compassion without opening to this radical view, the illusory dreamlike nature of all things, then um, we get bogged down and uh, 
and depressed that uh, it's too much to free all sentient beings from suffering if they really exist in the way that they seem to. It's just too tiring. And then the Mahayana Buddha Dharma, of course, uh, appeared in a dream to drift over to the east and uh, start to infiltrate China and eventually Japan. And uh, Chinese Zen ancestors sometimes also brought up this metaphor of the dream. For example, in the Book of Serenity, that collection of 100 Zen stories, near the end, case 90 and 91, are both about dreams. I think it's probably not coincidence that there's two dream koans in a row. The collector of these stories is maybe in a dreamlike mood when he put one into the book and thought, let's keep going on the dream theme. So Book of Serenity, Case 90 is called Yangshan's Declaration. Yangshan, one of the great Chinese ancestors, one time dreamed I think this means when he was asleep, but it doesn't say for sure. But Yangshan dreamed that he went up to Maitreya Buddha's place, like Tushita heaven, this realm where, where the future Buddha is waiting to come down to uh, our, our human world, help us when, when Shakyamuni Buddha's Dharma is, is all... Um, faded away, then Maitreya is supposed to come down and like, um, give us a jump start. So uh, Yangshan dreamed that he went up to Tushita heaven, Maitreya's place, and, uh, and Yangshan sat in the second seat. I think it means Maitreya is in the, in the uh, first seat. Maitreya, by the way, um, just as a footnote here, Maitreya, the future Buddha, uh, at least in, in like Tibetan imagery, that's probably Indian imagery, uh, standard, standard image of Maitreya is he, he does not sit cross-legged on a cushion. He sits in a chair. I don't know why, but, um, but the future Buddha will sit in a chair. So you're welcome to sit in a chair, this sashin to, um, to kind of align yourselves with Maitreya Buddha as, as you wish. Maitreya uh, means love. Future Buddha is of love, sat in the first seat, the chair. And uh, Yangshan dreamed that he went to Tushita heaven and sat in the seat next to Maitreya Buddha. 
the second seat. And um, a monk in that assembly said, today it's up to the one in the second seat to teach the Dharma. And Yangshan, without missing a beat, struck the mallet, getting people's attention and said, the teaching of the great vehicle is free from the four possibilities and the hundred negations. That's the koan, case 90 of Book of Serenity. The story of this koan happens in a dream. Yangshan's dream, he's asked to give some teaching and in his dream, he's, he's first, um, he doesn't have much time to prepare a talk because you know, he just pops into Tushita heaven and, and, the, uh, and the monk says, it's it, the one in the second seat's turn to give the Dharma talk today instead of my trainer. So Yanashan, just the first thing that came to his mind is the teaching of the Mahayana, the great vehicles beyond the four statements and the hundred negations, these four possibilities, we could call them, are that um, one version is that things actually exist in and of themselves, in their own being, independently. So the Mahayana is beyond that statement. Second statement is things don't exist at all. There's nothing whatsoever. And the Maya is beyond that statement. The third statement is that things both exist and neither exist. The Maya goes beyond such a statement. Well, what about the fourth statement? Things neither exist nor not exist. Sounds pretty good. But the Mahayana goes beyond that statement. Another set of way to put the four statements is that could, things could arise, arise from themselves. The Mahayana goes beyond things arising from themselves. What about things arising from another? For example, like a like a flower arising from a seed that's other than itself. The Mahayana goes beyond that kind of arising, actually. Nagarjuna goes to great lengths to prove that flowers do not arise from seeds. Luckily, we don't have to talk about that this week. It's hard, but very clear once you kind of spend some time with it. Things arise from both themselves and others. No, that's Mahayana goes beyond that. Things arise neither from themselves or from others, like totally randomly. No, things don't arise like that either. Things don't arise in any of these possible ways that they could arise. And uh, Yangshan, tells us this in a dream. He expresses this teaching in a dream. And uh, this great vehicle is free from these four possibilities and the hundred negations. 
which is just, you could say, all kinds of elaborations on these four, any other possibilities you might try to come up with. Um, anything you could say in words, basically. The great vehicle goes beyond. Yanshan gives this teaching in a dream, in a dream of the future Buddha's place. Then the next uh, case in the Book of Serenity, case 91 is called Nan Chuan's Pioni, no, Pioni, flower. The story goes like this, that officer Lu Gongnan said to Nan Chuan, the Zen teacher Nan Chuan, quote, he said, quote, teaching master Zhao was quite extraordinary because he was able to say, subquote, heaven, earth, and I have the same root. Myriad things are one essence one body and subquote and full quote. Can you follow this? Officer Lugon, um, I think a military officer was a student of Nan Chuan and um, he went to Nan Chuan one day and he said, Nan Chuan, you know, you know, teaching master Zhao who is actually not a living teacher, is a pre-Zen teacher, actually. It's kind of a early Mahayana teacher in China. Teaching Master Zhao was so amazing because he could say things like, quote, heaven, earth, and I have the same root. Myriad things are one essence, one body. Isn't that amazing? That he could say such a thing. And Nan Chuan, who heard this, pointed to a peony in the garden and said, people today see this flower as in a dream. It's kind of similar in some ways to the previous story. This amazing teaching that can be expressed Heaven, earth, and I have the same root. Everything has the same root. The all the myriad phenomena are just one body in reality. A wonderful Mahayana teaching. And, uh, and it is extraordinary, so it seems. But uh, when Nantuan heard, this expression of an extraordinary Dharma teaching. He said, well, you know, people see this flower here like, like in a dream. These beautiful Dharma teachings that we're hearing uh, in this lifetime, that we're hearing this week, are like just appearances in a dream. The dream expressions. Within a dream, 
there is expressing a dream. Within this dream is Prajnaparamita Sutras express something by dreams. So with all that as a background, exploration of the dream metaphor in the great vehicle, Buddha Dharma and the early Zen teachings. Dogen Zenji, within a dream, one day or one night, started writing this essay. Shogogenzo Mutsu Just to hear a taste of it, I'll read you the first sentence. How the way of all Buddhas and all ancestors, here it says, arises, but it's not the usual character for arise. And since we've been um, kind of critiquing the, uh, the idea of arising this morning, um, I think maybe a better translation is like emerges or comes forth which might sound similar, but the way of all Buddhas and ancestors emerges before the first forms emerge. The way of the Buddhas and ancestors, the Buddhas and the Zen ancestors. Dogen Zenji often uses this term, Buddhas and ancestors, all Buddhas and all ancestors, which is the Zen way of saying, um, the Buddhas like Shakyamuni Buddha and, and seven ancient Buddhas and then the, the Zen ancestors starting with Mahakashapa, Ananda and uh, through Bodhidharma and through China and Japan down to us yeah. the Buddhas and the ancestors the way of all Buddhas and ancestors like the Zen lineage you could say comes forth before the first signs emerge. Zen is prior to signs and forms and mental representations. So this is a lot so far. Um, why don't we stop? and see if you'd like to bring anything up, if there's any questions about um, dreams within this dream, either on the dream screen or in the dream <laughs> room, you're welcome to bring anything up. In the shared dream. Yes. Someone in a very, very, very literal mind is like trying to figure out how this building doesn't really manifest the way it is. And so all I can think of is time. I mean, how does time play into this? And 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, so so Pat's um saying, could we see that this this building doesn't um exist so substantially because um it wasn't here a hundred years, I don't know, hundred years ago, was it here? <laughs> and and we hope it'll be here in a hundred years, but it probably like not exactly this building, right? Um, at least a thousand years ago, and a thousand years from now, probably not this building at all. So um, so that that is the impermanence of this building, and, and the teachings of emptiness and impermanence are often closely woven together. Um, I think we could even say that because things like this building and this lectern and all of us are impermanent, uh, we um, don't exist in some inherent, um, especially when we talk to say inherent existence, it's kind of saying, it kind of implies permanence. Inherent existence is um, like this building has, a, it has an existence that's that um, can never be destroyed. I think something like that is meaning, one meaning of inherent existence. So it's true that um, uh, because things are impermanent, they don't exist as substantially as, as, we, as they seem to. Um, and Buddha, of course, taught impermanence over and over again. All things are impermanent and conditioned, all conditioned things are impermanent and subject to decay. Um, and yet the teaching of emptiness goes further and um, beyond impermanence. Things um, are not only impermanent, but um, even in one kind of flash of one, if we could pinpoint one moment of this building, um, kind of freeze a moment, maybe that already seems impossible. But uh, if we could look at this one uh, moment of the abiding of this building, it's um, kind of putting aside the issue of, of impermanence at such a time. We could say even in this one moment, um, it doesn't exist in the way that it appears to. So it's not only is it impermanent, but uh, it's um, it's not. Um, I think I think one way of there's many ways of talking about emptiness, but one of them that uh, the Lankavatara Sutra brought out is that uh, these phenomena, these things like this building, are not independent from the observer of them. And each of the each of us observers that can look at the building um, is actually seeing a slightly different building. Just seeing it from our own point of view, our, the angle from where we're sitting, looking at the building, we're seeing a slightly different building. But even if we were to trade places and um, and sit in the exact same spot and line up our eyeballs exactly where the other's eyeballs are, we still see a slightly different 
um, building. And uh, slightly, probably slightly different color and tint. And um, not only um, through, our, through the physical senses, but our, our idea of this building is slightly different. Like probably all of you who've been practicing here for a while, you, you pull around the corner and you see Austin Zen Center, you see the building and you um, immediately feel as if that's the Zen Center, that's like the temple here. And those who live here, when you come around the corner and you see, oh, I'm home. And uh, I've been here like almost a week now, so I'm starting to feel that way myself. Right? When I, I feel different about the building than um, I did a month ago. And I hadn't even thought about this building for a year. So um, we started, it becomes more familiar and then it starts to feel like uh, it's, uh, it's more than just an image. And then people driving by in their car don't even see it as a Zen center or a home. So in that way, you could say, it's actually like kind of, it's a different building to these different minds. And then we might say, oh, isn't there a real one though? Like the, um, that maybe the, the builder of the building, because they constructed it, it seems that they would know what the building's actually made of. It's a more, um, maybe you might say a less biased view or something, because they're just building a building like they build lots of them. But uh, that's just their point of view. There's no, there's no escaping a point of view. And is there a building apart from any points of view? This is where now, now we start to go deeper, right? Uh, and I think these teachings of people like Asanga and Vasubandhu in particular, and I think Yagarjana would agree with this too might put it a slightly different way that um, apart from any point of view, which requires a sentient being, that point of view, that there really isn't a building at all. But not that there's nothing that's going too far the other direction, but it's really not a building. Even if there's no humans, left, which could be in a thousand years that there's no humans in Austin to, um, to relate to this building. Could be that the building outlives the humans. Could be. We could imagine such a thing. But um, this morning, I, over across the street at my place, in the, in the dark, I couldn't quite make it out, but on the driveway there, it might have been a possum. Are there possums around here? Cool. <laughs> I rarely see possums like this big and kind of white, light colored, right? Yeah. Kind of thin, and kind of, kind of stealth. Yeah. <laughs> Moves down low, smaller than a raccoon. I think it was a possum. It could be that there's a time in Austin where there's no humans, but the but it's a town full of possums, and and the Zen center. What we call the Zen Center building is still here in some form. But I think for those possums, it's definitely, it's not a Zen Center. It's not a home until they eat through the walls and move in. It's not really a building. Um, 
I don't think they have a concept of building, but it's also not nothing. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, some, something is appearing here, but, um, but uh, it doesn't have any of those names or concepts. I think possums have a really different conception, I imagine, of the world, of the human world too. Maybe we'll get a chance to be a possum sometime. And uh, maybe we've been a possum in the past, but it's hard to remember what this Zen of it looked like or how it was perceived by us. But um, we could say that's also, that's going, takes a lot of imagination to go that far, but we could go even deeper than this and say, even for the possum, um, I imagine that a possum's perception, for that possum's perception, it still seems like that that big edifice, that, that mountain-like square structure in the middle of its land, um, that it doesn't know what it is, but uh, it's maybe relating to it. If it sees it with its eyes, I imagine that the possum still perceives this building as like external to itself. It still seems to be like over there and it can walk up to the building and that seems like closer to the building that's external to itself. The building is not just an, not just an appearance in the mind of the possum, that there's something like external. It's not a building, it's not a Zen center, it's not a hall, but it seems like something. So if we go even a step deeper, and this is where it gets challenged, right? It's, it's, um, is there really anything outside this mental perception? Is there anything other than um, the mental perception of the building? And this is, uh, this is where I think it gets especially challenging because we're so deeply ingrained to um, think, feel, and understand and believe that there must be a duality between mind and world. There must, these are two different realities, mind and world. There must be a world apart from mind. It's a very different in you know, physics and biology and these other sciences uh, often, not always, but often explain things this way. Can still have physics and biology, but um, uh, within this view of non-duality, I would say. But it's like a slightly different version. So it's like the, the sound when there's nobody to hear it. Yeah, is there is there a sound when there's nobody to hear it? It's waves in the air. The physicists would say, um, but if there's no eardrum, is it actually? Um, a sound like this sound. That's a good example of, you know, even the physicists would say, no, there's, there's waves in the air, but there's not a sound like this sound if there's no eardrums in the vicinity, right? And when we stop and think about that, it's not that hard to see, okay, there really, there really wouldn't be a sound there. That seems actually not, not that hard to understand that there really wouldn't be a sound, right? but um, 
But before we stop and think about it, if we imagine the tree falling in the forest with nobody there, we imagine that there would be a sound before we stop and think about it. I do, anyway, because I'm so deeply habituated to vibrations in the air being an actual sound. But that's just my, it's gonna say human-centric, but I should say eardrum-centric <laughs> version of the tree falling in the forest. If there's no eardrums, right, we can all understand that there wouldn't be sound. So, you know, would there be vibrations in the air? Again, you could be, we can take the same line of reasoning deeper and deeper. And especially in the conceptual realm, it's like, well, vibrations in the air are human conception. And scientists might say, no, they're not. They're, we're conceptualizing them with these words, but there actually are vibrations in the air apart from our conceptions. So then we have to have a longer talk. It's just, because the, the concept, conceptions and the measurements of the sound in the air are, uh, are the measurement, the, the scientific measurements of these meters that are, are, not, um, are not just eardrums, they're meters that can be read and agreed upon by a whole group of physicists. But the problem is that the meters are being read by um, consciousnesses. So that we can't find anything outside of, um, of mind. Could there be? Maybe. This is something we could discuss. Maybe there could be, but if there were something outside of consciousness, outside of Myra, it would be impossible to ever know it or even prove it. Can't we prove it by, um, by consensus? We all read this, read this meter. Yes, but it's, but it's, we can't escape the fact that it's that the meter is appearing in consciousness. So, um, but because of these things like consensus reality, I think this is one of the one of the things that convinces many humans that there must be um, something apart from, separate from mind or consciousness. Uh, but I would say that the proof doesn't fully hold up. It's an intuition, yes. Yeah, that, that's a question that comes up for me what you just touched upon about the issue of consensus. It's like, uh, to me, it seems like if there's not really something outside my mind, then like, how could I have a conversation with you about this building that we're in? Uh, yeah, I'm wondering if you could Elaborate. Uh, well, I think the, um, you know, briefly, and we can come back to this more because time's running, but, um, and it's a big topic. <laughs> but, uh, but Asanga and Vasubandhu, I think, have the, um, the nicest model. And this Dharma, these Dharma models and explanations, remember, are happening in the dream. They're, they're expressing dreams within a dream. So, that's just a disclaimer before we say anything. Right? Um, 
they're just more of the same dream. And yet it's, it's very nice, very provocative images. And, and what they use to talk about the consensus reality is, is this um, storehouse consciousness model, the alaya vijnana, and that there's individual seeds of experience in each of our storehouse consciousnesses, but there's also these collective seeds of experience, or you could say we share as a species of humans, we share a lot of collective karmic patterning, definitely karma, but karma gearing through various like looking at big square boxes with holes in them and calling them buildings. Or even, even if we have different language, it calls it a maison or something. It's not a house, it's a maison. Um, then we, uh, um, even there, we share these, these species-wide collective seeds that um, interpret certain shapes as living structures. Probably there's some human species who have never seen this kind of living structure and wouldn't see it like that. But um, like you could say, according to this yoga chara model, it's like um, all you need is these individual and collective seeds to create a highly interactive world of, of, um, of different minds, there's different minds, um, interacting um, all without any materiality. And uh, they get the Asanga in particular gets this theory gets more and more you know, complex because you have it brings up all these questions, right? But um, like this is the kind of line of reasoning they, they propose. And could it be that way? We could also say that sounds really far out to us kind of used to scientific materialism. And yet um, uh, it's also, uh, it seems to me to be a valid model that we could also question and bring up questions about. In either case, it brings up questions and becomes difficult to prove for sure. But that's some explanation. Well, um, maybe that's uh, enough for, <laughs> for now. And, uh, and uh, we can go more and more deeply into this Dogen essay over the next week. We dedicate any merit that uh, appears to arise from expressing a dream within a dream to all dreamlike beings everywhere, may they be free from all dreamlike suffering.